Let's have a prayer and we'll begin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you will bless us as we study your Holy Bible. And I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Malaysia, there are very many people that are more or less into spiritualism. And when they become Adventist, often they don't lose their fear of spirits. And you can see the powerful influence of spiritualism, even in the life of Jesus, when he walks on the water and his disciples see him on the water, they're afraid that they think they've seen a ghost. And you remember even when he appears to, the, to his disciples after the resurrection, they're afraid. Uh, they're afraid of, of Jesus. That, that fear of spirits is so strong that when people become Adventist, it doesn't just naturally go away. And so since I've moved to Malaysia, I've encountered many young people who are afraid to go into dark places, afraid of cemeteries, afraid of sounds at night, that many that have what almost seem like the first steps of mental uh, ill health, of schizophrenia, or the first steps of paranoia. And, um, and then what naturally comes in a situation where you have many people who are being pestered by demons or think they are, is a ministry of exorcism. And uh, maybe you do or don't know, but Buddhists have exorcists, and Hindus have exorcists, and Catholics have exorcists, and Muslims have exorcists, and Adventists. Even among Adventism, there are those who've made a specialty of what they call spiritual warfare, of casting out demons that go into the field with this idea of that God has called us to recognize demons and to cast them out. Uh, in Ellen White's time, even there were a couple, a man and a woman, the, Mackin, the Mackins, that thought this was part of the ministry God had given them, that they could recognize when demons were in someone and they could call that person and cast the demons out. So what I want to do for you now uh, is have another prayer and then discuss the Bible data and then give you a chance perhaps to ask questions about these things if you have questions about these things. Let me pray again. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that as we look at your Holy Bible that you would teach us what is right and true, that you would help us to understand and I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have Bibles with you, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 is a good launching place for the study of exorcism and demon possession and this business in Scripture. Mark chapter 16, and we're going to look at verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons and they will speak with new languages. And they will take up serpents and if they drink any deadly thing, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. 
You know, when we read about these signs, it could make us feel a little bit nervous because it's not very often now that we think of these signs following believers in Adventism, speaking with new languages and not being affected by poison or by snakes. But I want us to read a little further, and we're going to get some insights that will help us. Look at verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Do you see that? Notice that last phrase carefully. What were those signs doing? What was their function? Those signs were confirming the word that Jesus had been preaching and that the disciples were preaching. Now, as an Adventist, when you hear that word confirmed, it might make you think of Daniel chapter 9. You remember in Daniel chapter 9, we have those 490 years that are given for the Jews, and we're told that during the last seven of those years, that the Messiah will confirm the covenant with many for one week or for the seven years. So I'm going to suggest to you that you put these two passages together, that what we're reading about right here in Mark 16 is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9. That is that God worked with miracles, especially during those seven years, sign miracles, and those sign miracles were especially designed to help the Jewish believers become believers in Jesus. If you're still with me in the Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at the same idea there. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 5. It says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Now look back at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Do you see it here? The same idea that's in Hebrews? It's that, excuse me, that's in Mark 16. The idea is that during those seven years, God worked special miracles by the Holy Spirit, special gifts and miracles that were signs designed to be used by Jesus and to be used by the apostles to show that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, think about it more with what you already know. Here's Jesus. And John the Baptist is in jail, and he sends messengers to Jesus. And the messengers come, and they say to him, Are you the one that we're seeking for, or do we seek for another? And what did Jesus say? Jesus said to them, well, he quoted from Isaiah. And then he said to them, Go tell John what you see, that the dead are raised, that the blind see that the gospel is preached to the poor. What was Jesus saying? He was saying that it's by these miracles, John, 
that you can know that I'm the Messiah. Now use your mind with this. If those miracles show that Jesus is the Messiah, then would it make sense that those miracles would be found uh, throughout Bible history whenever you had a godly person? No, because Jeremiah isn't the Messiah. Daniel isn't the Messiah. But there is a class that we would expect to have those miracles besides Jesus. That's the apostles, because the apostles were the witnesses of Jesus. And they were the ones that were going to finish his three and a half years of special testimony to the Jews. Now, let me say this thought to you again in another way, and then we'll go further. Where do you find people being raised from the dead? Where do you find demons being cast out by a word? Where do you find people speaking with new tongues? You know, you can find some of those things here and there in scripture, but you find more of those events during the seven years from AD 27 to AD 34, more during those seven years than in the rest of the Bible history all put together. That's why we call these sign gifts. Those are the gifts that show that Jesus was the Messiah. And so this is why today I don't expect uh, to uh, God to be doing obvious miracles with raising the dead and speaking through tongues, through me or through others, or uh, casting out demons. I don't expect God to be doing those as signs any longer. Does that mean we don't expect any miracles today? No. But listen again carefully. There are seven chapters in the Bible, maybe more, that speak specifically of miracles in the end time context. Those are, if you're taking notes, Matthew 7, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 16. What do those chapters all have in common? Every one of those chapters discusses miracles in our day being agents of deception. That is, in the Bible, end-time miracles are not signs of who is the real Messiah, but they're used by the false Messiah as a sign. The false Messiah uses the miracles. It's those, those who have hearts are far from Jesus that say, have we not in your name done these marvelous works and cast out demons? So, so what about us? Do we have power to cast out demons? Yes, God has given to faithful people today uh, the power over demons. But we observe in Scripture some things that might surprise us. Maybe that would surprise you about the way that we ought to relate to demon possession. First of all, remember the story in the book of Acts. Here is Paul preaching, 
And here comes a woman that has a familiar spirit. She has masters that use her demon possession as a way to make money. And she comes and she testifies in favor of Paul. And she says, this man preaches the way of salvation. This man is from God. Now, I think that there are many Christians today that if they met a demon-possessed person and began to speak to them or about them, they would feel it was their bounden duty to cast that demon out. But do you remember in the story, Paul didn't cast that demon out. In fact, Paul ignored that demon and what the scripture says is that that lady followed him for many days, harassing him with these demonic statements. It wasn't until there had been time to show that Paul was giving religious liberty, that he rewarded that harassment by casting the demon out of that lady in such a way that the demon could no longer use her, and in this way, angering her masters. What I'm saying to you, is that no, Paul did not feel it his duty to cast out the demon out of the first person he met that had a demon. What about Jesus? Do you remember there in the Last Supper when Jesus said, what you do, do quickly? The Gospels say that Satan entered into Judas at that point. And you know what Jesus could have done? He could have cast out that demon. And just a few hours later, Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, and then, then at Pilate's courthouse with the Jewish leaders there. And what you have are demons in the form of men and demons controlling men, crying out cruelty and deception. And Jesus, surrounded by all those demon-possessed men, didn't cast a demon out of even one of them. And you, when you go canvassing, I suppose in your day that you encounter quite a number of demon-possessed people. Uh, one researcher here in the United States has concluded that about one in 20 people are psychopaths, meaning that they have no functioning conscience. Well, what do we call someone that has no functioning conscience? That's a person who has committed the unpardonable sin. That's a person who is easily controlled by demons. And yet God doesn't give us discernment to recognize that, uh, not generally. I've learned one way to recognize it is when the person tries to hold you and keep you and waste your time. And it's time just to go forward because otherwise the devil will just keep you forever by friendship and kindness and nonsensical talk. So now I want to speak a little bit about the intersection of demon possession and mental illness. Uh, schizophrenia is a very common illness. Uh, it's hard to define mental illnesses because they vary so much person to person and place to place. But when we talk about schizophrenia, uh, we mean a well-studied series of symptoms that often go together including hearing imaginary voices and sometimes seeing hallucinations and often paranoia where you think people are listening 
to you or people are out to get you. And religious schizophrenics often believe that they're being controlled by demons or that the devil is spying on them and is listening to their thoughts. Uh, probably it's a common enough illness that many of you know someone who has schizophrenia. And I just want to tell you that I have in my own short life uh, had quite a number of schizophrenics that were friends and students of mine. And I've had some success with them that has given me insights into how demons harass people that have mental illness. So let me just tell you a story and then work my way into the ideas. Uh, a young lady came to me in Malaysia about four and a half years ago. Uh, her grandfather was a, a wizard, that is a, a, a leading witch doctor. And those powers are believed to be passed down in the family. So she believed that she might have inherited a connection to the spirits. And she sometimes would see spirits. She'd see flashes of light. Sometimes the person sitting there and, and sometimes she would hear voices talking to her. And she was very afraid when she came and talked to me. She was afraid that one of three things might be happening. One is that maybe she was losing her mind. And as since she was a very bright young lady, that was scary. One thought she had is that demons were controlling her. And that thought was also scary. And one thought she had is that maybe uh, this was connected to the demons because of her grandfather, and that they were going to harass her for the rest of her life. And that also was intimidating to her. So I didn't get it straight right away, but eventually this is what I shared with her, and it's made quite a difference. What I observed in her life is that she didn't have these uh, hallucinations and see these and hear these voices and see these things at random times. Quite in the contrary, she had these experiences after significant sleep deprivation. In fact, schizophrenia is strongly associated with an inability to sleep. And uh, she, when she had sleep deprivation and also high levels of anxiety were connected to these manifestations. Uh, these experiences of hearing voices and seeing hallucinations. So I shared with her, and I think God helped me with this, that when we are in a dream state, when we're in our deep dreaming, you know, we have, we are quite powerful in our dreams. I think if you will think about your own dreams, that sometimes in your dreams that there are multiple characters. You might be talking to two or three people. They might talk back to you. One of them might chase you. One of them might give you a gift. Uh, one of them might even try to, to flirt with you. I don't know what kind of dreams you have. You might dream about your mother and your father and your wife. What's amazing about your dreams is that in your dreams, your mind creates not only your own, not only your own conversation, what you say and do, but your creative mind also creates the thoughts being spoken by the other characters in your dream. If your dad is in your dream, your mind creates what he says. If your mother's in the dream, your mind creates what she says. If there's a stranger or a monster in your dream or a, or a uh, 
dwarf or a talking animal, your mind creates all of them. So what I said to this young lady is sometimes our dream state slips into our waking experience. In fact, there's a phenomenon called sleep paralysis where your mind begins to wake up but doesn't wake up thoroughly. And when you have sleep paralysis, uh, your eyes wake up, you begin to see what's around you, but your mind still is filled with that paralyzing chemical. I don't know if you know that, but you have a paralyzing chemical that is designed to keep your dreams from being act out, acted out. And when you begin to wake up with sleep paralysis, that chemical has not yet been counteracted in your system. So without that chemical, you're not able to move your arms or your legs. You can't scream out. You can't even breathe deeply. All you can do is move your eyes. You know when that happens to people, the fact that they move their eyes and they can't move anything else makes them scared. When they're scared, they expect to breathe deeply, and so they can't. So they have this feeling of their, their chest being crushed, and they believe a demon is trying to, trying to crush them. And if they're a Christian, they'll call out to Jesus, but they can't say anything. And finally, they say the name of Jesus, and that crushing feeling goes away. And they're sure that a demon has bothered them. They're sure that a demon has bothered them. And so they cannot believe that it's just natural, but it is natural. What's going on there has nothing to do with demons. If it was a demon, that demon would bother you in the daytime. That demon would bother you in the middle of the day and try to squish your life out. Buddhists have the same experience. Atheists have the same experience. Uh, and when I shared this with the lady, what I was telling her is that it's very common for people to have part of their sleep experience slip into their, their daytime living. And I told her that for some people, it goes further, and they can have those dream skills where they hear things and see things even in the middle of the day. And that we call that a mental illness, but that if you can learn a few special tricks, you can learn to tell which elements that you see and hear are real and which ones are your dream state. I told her that if someone else can see it, it's probably real. And if someone else can hear it, it's probably real. But if someone next to you can't see it, that's probably your dream state operating. And if someone else can't hear the voice, that's probably your dream state. And your dream state is creating the voices and the appearances. So it's not a demon, it's not uh, some kook trying to get you, it's your own creative imagination. You know, once she was aware of this, it took a great burden off of her. It took a lot of the fear away. And that fear took away some of the anxiety. And the anxiety allowed the sleep to be improved. And in general now, she's been living for four years with only rare experiences of hallucinations and every one of those associated with particular anxious stress and sleep deprivation. And she's the principal now of a secondary school and doing a great job. 
what I've, what I've experienced there is I've seen that Satan tries to take advantage of persons who have this kind of experience of sleep paralysis or of seeing hallucinations, and he will harass them and play with them, doing the few things that God allows him to do if he can get a toehold in their life through a sin. Have you thought about how handicapped Satan is? I mean, Satan, maybe he can turn the light on and off in your room or move a tea kettle off the edge of the table, but why can't he just snuff your life out? Why can't Satan just kill all the birds? Why can't he just wilt all the flowers? If one angel can kill 180,000 people at the command of God, why can't Satan just destroy your local church and all its members? It's because Satan is heavily handicapped. He's prevented from doing many things. And because of that prevention, he doesn't have, it's not a large class that he can hope to really get into his, the palm of his hand, but he picks on weak ones, just like lions pick on the weakest and wolves pick on the weakest. Satan picks on the weakest that he can find. He does it. So he will harass people that have mental illness problems. And if you will try to help them, I think that you can help them work through this harassment and banish that devil. And you can have real help with people. But let me say it again. These people are not typically demon possessed. They're demon harassed. And they're being harassed by a combination of small, useless things, weak things, and of their own act of imagination that torments them. And if we can remove that tormenting imagination, then those few things that Satan does won't be so scary to them anymore, and he will lose his power in their life. So let me summarize the things that I've said. I've been giving you a monologue for a half hour, then I'll give you a chance to ask questions if you would like. Should we expect exorcism today? Well, in the history of Adventism, there have been a number of exorcists, and it's gone bad in every case. In every case, it's developed to fanaticism. In every case, it's developed into a fanaticism that involves talking to demons. And you might say back to me, but didn't Jesus talk to the demon? Didn't he say, what is your name? But let me clarify again. Jesus is a little different than me in some ways. He is the Son of God. And when the demon confronted Jesus and said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, what he said to Jesus is, don't torment me before the time. Because that demon was talking to Jesus. And that demon did not want to have that torment happen to him at any time early, if not even ever. Jesus asked him, what is your name? But the difference between you and Jesus is that you are not the ruler of the angels. You're not the one that can send demons to hell. You're not the one that can cast them to swine. And if you'll look at it in the gospels, you'll see that quite generally, Jesus didn't talk to demons at all. Quite generally, there was no communication with them. And in the case of that woman in Matthew 15, that Syrophoenician Canaanite woman, she came to Jesus and said, my daughter is vexed with a demon. And Jesus cast out that demon without even going to where the young lady was. 
what am I trying to say? That talking to demons is not a necessary part of the business of casting them out of those who want to be free. It's not something Jesus generally did. It's not something we should ever do. So that if the devil makes the mistake of acting up in front of you, then yes, you ought to figure out, is that person wanting to be free? Not every person has been possessed. Not every possessed person wants to be free. And when Jesus healed the two demoniacs that came from the tombs, it was because they wanted to be free that they approached Jesus. I'm trying to help you understand the difference between Jesus healing them and Jesus uh, and Paul not helping that woman that followed him for many days. But if someone really wants freedom from harassment, if they come to you for help, if you work through the issue of sin with them and remove sin from their life, if they repent of the sin, then if they resist the devil in the form of temptation, you know what the devil will do when they resist him by the power of God? The devil will flee from them, and you can pray for them, and God will help you. But it won't be as a sign to show that you're right with God. And if you cast out a demon today, that's no evidence that you're right with God. Because the devils love to play with Adventists. They love to make you think you're right with God when you're not. And they would love to put you into an experience of exorcism where you suppose you have power over demons when really the demons are just pretending to, to be manipulated by you so that they can manipulate you. So yes, Jesus cast them out. Yes, the apostles cast them out. Sometimes at a distance, sometimes without even seeing them. And what were we told to do? We weren't given instruction of how to cast them out. We were given instruction to resist them. We were told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We've been given instruction to say that we have, in Psalm 91, power over all the power of the enemy, that we can tread on serpents and scorpions. And so that is a message to us that demons aren't wise to act up in our behalf. And I'll tell you, demons aren't likely to act up around you. Because in any place where the devil is promoting skepticism, he doesn't want to act up with demons for fear that he will destroy with one hand what he builds up in another. But in places like Malaysia and maybe in countries that you might visit in mission where, where there are few atheists, where the devil isn't producing secularism, but instead is producing spiritualism, the devil will work there. And who will he pick on? It's the weak link those that struggle with hallucinations, those that struggle with insecure thoughts, those who have been molested or otherwise troubled so that they believe that God is far from them and they don't lean on him or trust in him. Hey, let's use the gospel. Let's lead them into trusting God. Let's show them how he's working to heal and to help them and not let the devil take advantage of their weakness by harassing them and leading them into uncurable mental illness. I'm certainly not the one saying that all schizophrenia can be healed by uh, good behavior. And I'm not talking at all about manic depression, bipolar disorder. I know uh, one person who's tried to manage it with lifestyle, but even 
after 30 years of careful lifestyle management, she still struggles at times with uh, manic bouts and severe depression. But someone who has hallucinations consistent with schizophrenia, maybe you can be a help to them. And if you know someone who's going through this business of exorcism, maybe you can lead them into a more healthy experience. Maybe you can read the Mackin case yourself and find out what is there to be read. I'm going to have a prayer with you, and then uh, I'm going to open the door for anyone who wants to ask a question to ask it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us opportunity to find out what's true and right. And I ask for that gift and for your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so I know I was about a half hour late, and... Um, and I see that uh, someone said that Robert Bernot is uh, verifying my point in the book, uh, Dealing with Angels. And if I'd speak about Robert Bernot for just a minute, um, a minute, Zillin, I would say that I wish he didn't quote demons so much. You know, in his uh, first books, he told extensively about his experience with demons and about the demons and their plan for what they plan to do. And I think he trusted them too much when he quoted them as if they were telling their own servants honestly their plans. I think we're better off to ignore the devil when he speaks. But yes, it's certainly not wise to talk to demons. And thank you, Zillan, for sharing that. Beware of Angels is the story of a fanaticism that grew here in the United States and culminated with murder and with other terrible things. And it's not even fully resolved yet. Is there anyone else that's still here that might have a question they want to ask or something they want to say? Let me just see who all waited for me when I was a half hour late. I'll just go there. Okay, well, there are some people here. Well, I just give you all so much credit waiting for, for your tardy uh, speaker. So I'm just going to take a few more minutes and see. If you have anything to say, and if you don't, then maybe I'll launch into another lecture because I don't have a lot more to say about this one right now. Are there any questions? Any questions any of you might have? I'll give you about 30 seconds. Okay, well, I'm there's one. Do you think that demon possession is still, let's see where that went. It uh, is still happening from Crystal. At Crystal, I'm sure of it. I'm sure that there are very many people who are demon possessed today. And that I think I explained in this short lecture about why you don't see them showing up in the UK and Germany and France so often. It's because the devil is bright. And he's not going to have someone go screaming and have their eyes roll back and roll on the floor uh, drooling uh, as a demon-possessed person in the midst of a bunch of secularists. You know, they might be led to seek for God and seek for truth. But in Malaysia, where I live, and in India, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, interaction with demons, lots of harassment, lots of people who are involved with exorcism and lots of very strange activities. That's why, the, that's why in Malaysia that the BOMOs are so popular. When a Muslim has demon possession issues, they go to the local witch doctors to get help. 
which isn't consistent with Islam as you find in the Middle East, but it's very consistent with Islam as you find in Malaysia and Indonesia. And I don't know enough about Pakistan or India to speak to it there. Any other questions that someone might have? You mentioned psychological disorders related to demon possession. Yeah, so uh, Crystal, I'm not a psychologist, but I've had a number of schizophrenic students. And I remember one thing that really surprised me in the early 90s is I had two students that were so, they were, they were, their hallucinations were to such a loud and troublesome extent that I had to kick them both out of school. I had to send them both home. So what surprised me later is when I discovered that um, both of them had largely recovered. And um, what I, here's what I discovered about their recovery. I found that they ended up getting jobs that were non-repetitive that were hands-on. One of them went into gardening and then the military, one was doing wallpapering. And what I learned by experience after those two students is that the worst thing for a schizophrenic is to be in a padded room. The worst thing for someone that has a trouble with hallucinations, that is they confuse reality and imagination, is to be in their room thinking. And the very best thing for them is to get outside and work in the garden that when they're there uh, pulling the weeds and looking for the carrots and taking care of the bugs, that anything that requires eye-hand coordination really puts a barrier that makes it hard for the imagination to get in front. The imagination takes a second, a second seat, a back seat, to things that are right in your, in your face. So if you know someone who's beginning to have those kind of situations, what I do besides talking to them the way I've talked to you is I make sure that we get them into a garden, get them working lawn hours, keep them from spending their time doing anything that is just sitting around. I encourage them in their devotions to read out loud because maybe you know from your own experience that when you read the Bible silently, your imagination isn't so weak as to take a back seat to silent reading. And that reading out loud really puts the imagination on the back end and prevents it from causing trouble. The success I've had with these methods of getting people out and going and working, and I've learned so much from this. It, and even during the pandemic, I had some terrible experiences that reinforced what I'd learned. I learned that my students who were having terrible anxiety, anxiety that prevented them from going out and from being with people, that was nearly psychosis, that it was the being in their room that was aggravating their anxiety. And when I put them where I could, where they were working in the garden and working outside and kept them busy from morning to night, just constantly active, you know their anxiety levels highly reduced, just like the hallucination levels of the other students. And I've learned that when God gave us work to do was really for our benefit. Now I saw that someone asked me a question and but what happens is they show up and then they disappear. So I'm gonna go inside where I can have better lighting and maybe try to read the chat bit. Give me just a moment here because I think I can do that and then I'll be able to see what you've written and answer better. Give me just a moment.
Okay, if I go here and I go more and then I go chat, then I see. So this says from Violet, in India, people do use black magic and have demon possession partly because of their many gods and such. They even kind of open a way for spirits to play with them. So Violet, what you're saying is certainly true. In fact, I know a lady, an Adventist in India, that herself has seen one of the Hindu gods when she was a Hindu. And so it's certainly true that demons are more active with people who are not being, uh, not being deceived with um, skepticism. Zillin said, one psychiatric in specialty was sitting next to me during the lecture. He experienced on the psychiatric hospital. Zillin, I don't understand that sentence. Let me try to read it again. One psychiatric in SPE, I think that's in specialty, was sitting next to me during the lecture. He experienced, he had experience in a psychiatric hospital. Okay, I think you're not asking me something. You're just telling me that that was what was going on. And Crystal said, some SDA pastors uh, mentioned that depression even can be a sign of demon possession. Do you have experience with that? Uh, Crystal, please, let me respond to your statement. Depression is caused by so many things that I would put demonic possession on the far low end of the spectrum of causes. Like, depression can be caused by a high sugar diet. It can be caused by, uh, by sleep deprivation. It can be caused by a lack of exercise. It can be caused by the pattern of thinking you have. I would recommend someone that struggles with it to consider uh, the book Telling Yourself the Truth or the chapter in Ministry of Healing called Mind Cure. And I try to get them on an exercise program. And I'm sure if we work in that direction that we can help them so much. Dr. Neil Nedley has a lot of experience with helping depressed people. But in his depression recovery program at Weimar, California, when they interview you initially, if they find any evidence of hallucinations, they won't accept you. So, so if you're going to go there, that's going to need to be for depression that's unrelated to hallucinations. But I think that we can help people that have both together. Okay, so Zillin said SPE means in future. One psychiatric in the future, a future psychiatrist maybe. Maybe that's your saying. And then Marilyn said, I've experienced demonic harassment in third world countries. It's more prevalent there, right? Yes, Marilyn, certainly only prevalent there. And what would happen when you come back to Germany or England or France and you talk about it is people will think that it's not real because the devil is promoting secularism and uh, a widespread skepticism in those places. What do you suggest to do to help one who believes a friend is suffering from demon harassment or possession. So Kelsey, uh, this lecture is, is, my, is my answer to that question. Uh, this, this lecture is telling you exactly what I do when I have those kind of situations. I try to first help with the mental health part. I think when we can help them recover mental health, we take away an opportunity for the demons. So when we work on the mental health first, then if I find that they want to have that demon power, if they, if they 
purposely want to hold on to sin, then I'm not inclined to try to dispossess someone who, who wants to be with the devil. But if someone is aching to be free, then I think that often they're not even as possessed as they think they are. But yes, we should pray for them, and, and we can cast out demons by a simple prayer. Uh, we don't need to come with some 15-minute ritual and, and put a key on the Bible, etc. There's a bunch of nonsense designed to make you think that that business of casting out demons has more to do with you than it does. Well, you all were slow with questions, but you sure aren't slow coming up with them now. But I think I've gotten through the whole list that I see here. Are there any others that someone wants to say? Have I made anyone angry? Uh, I suppose someone will listen to this and will write me a, a long, hard letter at some point. I'm good friends right now with a lady named Carol, whose father was one of the more prominent exorcists in the United States in Adventism that really got into fanaticism. And Carol has left that fanaticism behind, and she says that it ruined her family. And just uh, eventually her parents were divorced. Her sister ended up leaving faith in the Bible. The, the devil really has a purpose with this business of exorcism to destroy spiritual life. Okay. So I'm writing an article on this, and when the article is written, I'll be happy to post it somewhere. But unfortunately, the article is in my computer, which is in Malaysia, where I haven't been in six months. And consequently, I haven't worked on it in six months. I left Malaysia in early March, thinking to be gone for 10 days. And then the world locked down, and I haven't been able to go back yet. But I have a ticket to go back next week when I can finish this unfinished business. So no other question has come in. So I'm going to have a prayer with you. Oh, what do we have here? Is your main point that we shouldn't be distracted by the topic of demon possession? Crystal, my main point is that we should have good hope for people that have hallucinations and that we shouldn't get into exorcism and that we shouldn't put a lot of weight on miracles. The testimony of the Bible is that miracles like exorcism are going to be used in our day to lead people astray. So I suppose when Europe becomes religious again because of miracles, that you might see next to you in Europe a man who a Baptist cast a demon out of him and proves that Jesus is with him. And I hope that won't be impressive to you, that you won't be impressed by miracles because you know those miracles were signs of Jesus for seven years for a special purpose, but not for our day. And I hope if your own nephew or friend uh, is anxious and stressed and sleep deprived and begins to have hallucinations, that you'll know how to come up to her, it's probably a her in that case, and save her from a lifetime of drugs and troubles that will just ruin her usefulness. And realize that with proper help and treatment, that mind could be brought back to a healthy condition and become productive even today. That lady I mentioned to you has already had a hand in the conversion of almost eight people to the truth in the last three years and is doing a great job bearing heavy responsibilities. You know, the nicest thing about this chat is that it tells me that you're listening, that, that this is working. All right, so let me have a prayer with you now and I'll let you go. And anyone that came early and left because I was late, would you please apologize to them and tell them to find the recording? And um, someday I'll get a better grip on time zones. It's really causing me trouble. 
it really is. And uh, anyway, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would take the Bible truth and that you'd use it to save us from the tricks that are coming, from skepticism or fanaticism, that you would help us to bless those who are weak-minded and whose wills are easily perplexed and whose imaginations are diseased. Teach us how to lead them to have a healthy mind. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.